Well, it probably won't surprise you um, that trust in almost everything in our culture is at an all-time low. Uh, institutions and people we may have trusted at one point um, seem no longer trustworthy. And when you begin to not trust institutions and not trust people, you can become uh, very cynical. You just kind of don't trust anybody anymore, and so you're left to yourself, and you don't even know that you can trust yourself. And what we come to in our text this morning is really part of an ongoing saga that teaches us repeatedly that while we can't entirely trust man, we can ultimately trust God entirely. He's a God who never lies. He's a God who never breaks his promises. He's a God who never flatters. He's a God who never misrepresents his intentions. He's a God who communicates, who does not communicate disinformation in any way to get his own way. And he always acts and speaks with absolute integrity. God is able to be trusted entirely. That's what we come to this morning. And that means that if God does something, we know it's right, no matter how many questions we may have. And, And that if God says something. We know it's true no matter how many questions we may have. In in today's text, again, we will once again see that God will be faithful to fulfill his promises and accomplish his purposes. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to take time to read this text. It's Genesis chapter 20 and chapter 21, and I would like you to stand for the reading of the word this morning. Genesis 20 and 21. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not? himself say to me she is my sister and she herself said he is my brother in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I've, I've done this then then God said to him in a dream yeah I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart and it was I who kept you from sinning against me therefore I did not let you touch her now then return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live but if you do not return her know that you shall surely die you and all who are yours so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things and they the men were very much afraid and Abimelech called Abraham and said to him what have you done to us and and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At, at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah Abraham's wife now chapter 21 the Lord visited Sarah as he had said and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. 
And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, and she put the child under one of the bushes, and she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for, the, for she said, let me now look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham said, seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant to Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. It's the God's word for us this morning. You can be seated. In chapter 20, we will see this. That God is faithful to his covenant amid all the unfaithfulness of Abraham. God will remain faithful to his covenant amid the unfaithfulness of Abraham. Now, if the lie in verse 2 that we come to sounds familiar to you, there's a good reason for that. It's not the first time Abraham has lied about Sarah to uh, people. Genesis 12, in particular, when, when Abraham lies to Pharaoh, um, saying that she is my sister, not my wife. Now, this time in Genesis 20, it's a, it's a lie to not Pharaoh, but to the king of the Philistines. Abimelech, down in the southwest part of Canaan, close, close to where Gaza is today. Abimelech's told that Sarah um, is Abraham's sister, but as we're aware, actually, uh, she's his wife, right? So believing her to be Abraham's sister, he sees that she's beautiful, even at 90 years of age, she's beautiful, and, and he sent for her to be his wife. Now, this is problematic for a few reasons, not, not least of which is a threat against the promise of God regarding a son that would be born to Abraham. And on account of that threat, we read in verses 3 and following that God speaks to Abimelech in a dream. And he pretty much says that he's a dead man if he touches Sarah. And he's a dead man if he refuses to return Sarah to Abraham. The choice is pretty stark. Return her and live. Um, keep her and die. Not just you, but all your people. 
And it was clear in the text that Abimelech didn't approach her or touch her. Touch her. This, was, this was of utmost importance. He, he, he wanted to communicate to Abraham, I, I, didn't, I didn't touch her. And matter of fact, it says that God caused him to not touch her, to not have sex with her, to not, um, to not become a problem in the line of how God is going to bless the nations. Uh, again, the, the reason that this is so important is because of the promised son that God made, the promise of Isaac with Sarah, whom she would miraculously conceive. It had to be very clear that this son, this promised son, belonged to Abraham and not Abimelech. Now, there could be no doubt that this was Abraham's offspring because God had promised to Abraham multitudes from him, from he, the covenant was with him, not with Abimelech. And so for God to be true to his covenant promise, he kept Abimelech from sinning against him. God made sure that nothing was going to get in the way of his covenant promises. In verses 8 through 12, we come to Abimelech's confrontation with Abraham and Abraham's lame response to him. Now, the reality is, of course, Sarah is his half-sister. Um, so it's partially true, right? Abraham's lie was half-right. But it was entirely improper. In fact, in Leviticus, the kind of marriage that, that, that Abraham had was prohibited. But for now, the issue isn't the half-sister part, um, although it's an issue, but it's, it's the fact that Abraham lied. Uh, J.A. Packer says, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And that's definitely what we see happening here. Abraham may very well have tried to convince himself that he wasn't lying, but that does not make the lie somehow better, and he less a lie. Now let's just say that it's often pretty easy for us to do the same thing. Um, we can tend to be hard on Abraham, but we should not be so hard on him. We, we often come up with a justification for our angry outbursts. We often come up with a justification for our unwholesome speech we often come up with some sort of justification for our selfish responses or our sexual sin or whatever other sin that we just really truly want to commit. This is some of why it's important to take advantage of the means of grace that, that God gives us to prevent those things from happening or at least to work against those things. It, it includes uh, doing what you're doing this morning by prioritizing Sunday mornings to sit under the preached word of God. That God's word as it's preached will not return empty but will affect us, will have a work by the Spirit in us. It includes enjoying together the prayers of the saints, of doing that together, of praying together, listening and observing and being part of that. It includes the singing of praise to God or the sacraments or fellowship with other saints, as imperfect as we all are. Today, Sunday worship, even for those who seem to be more mature in their faith, is a secondary priority compared to other things in their life. Um, and when we prioritize other things over the corporate gathering of the believers, we do ourselves and others around us who are covenanted with, we do ourselves and others a, a great disservice. There is there's grace that we're meant to experience as we gather here on Sunday mornings. So thank you for being here. It's an evidence of grace in you that you're here, among all the other things that vie for our attention. It's not to say there's not, reason, there's not reasons to not come from time to time, but you see the prioritization of coming to, to gather with God's people is a means of grace to us. Our fight against the flesh must include the prioritization of, of reading and meditating on God's word regularly, not just on Sunday mornings, but day by day, even moment by moment, as the Spirit would bring to mind that which uh, we've read and that which we've meditated on and that which we've memorized, that, that we would put sin to death, that we would know the love of Christ, that we would be assured by the Spirit of our adoption as sons and daughters of God day after day. It includes being purposeful in our relationships with one another, to, to not be afraid of speaking truth and love with gentleness for one another and with one another and being willing to humbly accept correction from one another. 
and to recalibrate our spiritual journeys together. These, these, along with a number of other ways, are all ways in which we can guard ourselves against the tendency we all have to kind of manufacture a justification in our minds for the sins that we just kind of want to commit. Certainly these things don't earn us the love of God. But they are used by God as a means of grace to know that love of God and to experience it more keenly. Living in community with one another rather than isolating ourselves where we hear our, our, our own kind of justification. That's all, that's all we hear is what's going on inside of us for how we're living. Uh, our, our fellowship with one another is a gift, a sweet gift of God to our commitment to one another to help us not stay there, but to grow together. Now, let's keep going. Verse 13. Abraham continues his sad, pitiful explanation to Abimelech. And this, this sin of his wasn't something just on a spot in a difficult moment where, where he, was, he was being affected by his emotions in the moment trying to protect himself. He actually, it says, um, had decided together beforehand with Sarah that this is what they would do. Not, not just here, but obviously in Egypt back in the day and Probably other times also that aren't mentioned in the text. These are these are um, a premeditated kind of it's a premeditated kind of decision to walk away from the covenant of God, to to distrust the promises of God, and they just kind of just kind of decided to do that, trust themselves. You think about your own deep-rooted sin, our own deep-rooted sin that we've embraced at some points in our life has become a life pattern for us. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's sexual immorality. Maybe it's godlessness. That is, kind of living as though God doesn't exist. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's holding on to something as more important than the Lord, or prioritizing your kingdom on, or the kingdom of this world over his kingdom. So not seeking first the kingdom of God, but seeking first our own kingdom. Perhaps you've embraced the sin so long you don't even think of them anymore and you just kind of give it, um, give it no thought. It's just kind of part of your character. It's, it becomes kind of part of who you are. Well, I just struggle with anger. Well, I just do this, or I just do that. The lackadaisical way you think about your sins, both those that are committed by action and those things that you should do but don't, does not change the fact that there's still sin against God and, and, and displeasing to the Lord. So the question is here, what agreements have you made with sin and unbelief? Where you just kind of settled for something less than what God has for you in holiness. Verses 14 through 18, we come to find out that there's an effect on others on account of Abraham's sin. The effect of Abraham's sin on Abimelech is not just on Abimelech, but it's on the women of his household in particular, and all those in the community. God had closed all the women's wombs so they wouldn't have children. This whole ordeal of Abraham's sin had significant consequences, and it was only by God's grace that nothing bad happened. This was what we, what we see in this text. This text is not primarily, though we've spoken about it quite a bit here, it's not primarily about the sin of Abraham. And don't be like Abraham. This is a primarily a text about the grace of God. Abraham deserved punishment. Abimelech, pagan, deserved punishment. But what he got was mercy, grace. Here are some ways we see it. God displays his grace by not immediately punishing Abraham for his lie. Nor does he withdraw his covenant with him based on his quickness to sin. He's pretty quick to kind of return to his own vomit. Pretty, pretty quick. And yet God is faithful to his covenant promise. That's grace. We see God's grace in the fact that he's actively watching over Abraham and, and his well-being. In verse 3, God uh, threatens Abimelech with death if he doesn't return Sarah. So he's protecting, he's protecting his covenant promise. He's protecting Abraham. He's watching over Abraham, making sure that Abimelech follows through with returning Sarah. And on top of that, God led Abimelech to give Abraham whatever he wanted along with a significant amount of wealth. God, God did this all for uh, a rather inconsistent and sometimes foolish man. And, and, and frankly, when I consider Abraham, 
and I consider him being a foolish man, and yet God has extended grace to him upon grace, I, I think rather positively about myself. And I think, what grace have I received? It's good news for me. It's good news for you that God extends grace to us who are foolish and so very fickle. God's patience doesn't run out. His faithfulness is steadfast. His grace is greater than our sin, and he watches over us. If you belong to God, then it's impossible for you to mess up badly enough or enough times to get to a place where God's grace won't reach you. God is just as committed to being gracious to you as he was being gracious to Abraham. And he does that in two ways. Specifically, he forgives us of our sins. The Apostle John says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a, this is a, a, a common verse. This is a verse that we have grown a, kind of accustomed to. But consider it again for a moment. If we confess our sins, he is, say it, faithful. And he's just. He's right to forgive us of our sins and will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is good news. We have two options. One, one, we can either deny our sins and say, well, it's not a big deal, so I justify somehow myself, which is no real justification, or we confess our sins before God. And if we confess our sins, God does not take a recess to kind of evaluate how bad that sin is or to check records to see how many times we've committed that sin in the past before deciding what he'll do. He forgives us. This is our faithful God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness again and again and again and again and again. One time for all on one hand, on the other hand, continually throughout our lives. Just a few verses later in 1 John chapter 2, Apostle John tells us how he's able to do that. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Of all kinds of people throughout this world. Left to ourselves, of course, uh, the consequences of our sin against holy God would be horribly severe. Uh, yet absolutely just as we would deserve eternity in hell. That's, that's, not a, that's not a topic that our culture likes to talk about. Whether outside of the church or, unfortunately, inside the church, but the reality is the holiness of God, our sin against the holiness of God, uh, creates not just attention, it creates the need for judgment, a vindication of his holiness. And his, I think, I think our, our, our lack of understanding about, about hell, the consequences of our sin, um, and, and our, our lack of, our lack of um, like, our kind of consternation, maybe, or, or shock, that there is something like eternal hell points, points to the reality that we don't understand the holiness of God. God graciously provides a way for us to be rescued from what we deserve through the person of Jesus. The good news is that Jesus does a work for us. See, we who deserve judgment can receive mercy through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The, the good news, the gospel that we sing about and pray for and celebrate at the Lord's table each week and as we speak about um, right with, with hopefully significant regularity tells us that our sin was laid on Jesus. Our sin, my sin, all, all of my sin laid on Jesus. The, the, the punishment that should have been mine was laid on Jesus. He was punished in my place. He was the sacrifice that we would be forgiven if we trust him. Our sins laid on him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one of us to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because Jesus himself died on the cross, all who put their trust in him, all who put their trust in him are forever and permanently forgiven. You feel that? Forever and permanently forgiven. Accepted in the beloved. 
justified, adopted as sons and daughters, kept by him. And he promises to not only forgive all those who hope in Christ, but he promises to continue to work in us, to conform us into the likeness of Christ. Abraham's sin did not stop God's continued work in Abraham's life or keep God from accomplishing his purposes in Abraham. Likewise, those of us who are Christians, God never gives up on us or discontinues his work in our lives because he loves us and he's chosen us and he's forgiven us. He set us apart as his sons and daughters and, and he is going to sanctify us and one day he will glorify us as we see him face to face. We, we tend to give up on each other but, you know, and we do so relatively quick. But God, in the midst of our stumbling and all of our failures, continues to accomplish his work within us, conforming us to the likeness of Jesus. We, we look for signs that God is at work through signs and wonders, and certainly he works that way, and we want to continue pursuing those things. But we must also work diligently to remind ourselves that even in the darkest and loneliest, loneliest, loneliest of nights, God is on mission to transform us. God's at work among us. No matter how dark it may seem, God is at work. God is not absent. God is not not working. God is working. He is building his church. He is making us more like Jesus in the way we live and the way we think. And nothing can stand in his way. We submit to him. Not even our own foolish decisions can ultimately keep him from accomplishing his purposes within us. No, no matter how often we stumble and fail and prioritize our own wills and purposes over his, the same God who began a good work in you, when he started it, he will complete it on that day of Christ, Jesus. He will faithfully bring the good work to completion. Um, perhaps much of our lives may feel like we're taking two steps forward and one step back or maybe some days three steps back. But, but nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. We trust in Jesus. Nothing separates us from God's love. God is faithful to his covenant amid the unfaithfulness of Abraham or Steve Weiss or Jenna Stacy or Dave Coleman or put your own name in that place. Uh, is that now one of the most comforting and encouraging things you've ever heard? Friends, may we be grateful for God's grace. But let's not presume that he'll always shield us from the painful consequences of our sin. That there is an effect, like there was an effect on Abimelech. There's, there's an effect when we're angry, we confess our sins, faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's an effect on the person you've been angry with. Sexual immorality, the same way. There's consequences for our sins. There's ramifications. May we be grateful for God's grace, but don't presume that, that you'll be kept from the consequences. You can walk through the consequences knowing that God is gracious and you've been forgiven. But be patient with those whom you've sinned against. Be patient with yourself as you continue to entrust yourself to Christ. May we be prepared for deep change in certain areas of our life to take some time. Sometimes there's immediate deliverance. Other times there's just this long, perhaps most times, there's this long walk of putting sin to death and putting on Christ. Day by day, moment by moment, episode by episode, some sins are so deeply rooted in our lives and so stubbornly persistent that walking in victory just simply takes time. Um, I said to somebody one time, we, we have been delivered by Christ and yet we are being delivered. Uh, another way to say it, we have been saved, but we are being saved. And the promise is, one day we will be saved. Not because we've become somehow perfect, but because God is faithful to his promises. May we be aware that God uses imperfect people all the time. Whether it's Abraham or you or me, we're all flawed folks. The, the enemies of our faith sure try to convince us that we're all losers and God can't use us. But God in his grace 
always uses flawed, forgiven people for his purposes. Consider Hebrews 11 this week and just kind of look down the list and you can see a bunch of people just like you and me. I was shocked, really, the first time I read Samson's name in Hebrews 11. Flawed individual, and yet he entrusted himself to the Lord. May we be patient with the failings of other people, to know that as much as it's a struggle for you in your sin, guess what? It's a struggle for them as well. They're wrestling with similar things as you. It's really rather amazing how we can be those who receive so much grace. We will want to receive so much grace and forgiveness from God, yet be so quick to lack grace and forgiveness with one another. May we be those who show the same patience and grace towards one another that God shows us. And God's faithful to his covenant amid the unfaithfulness of his people. Let's move to chapter 21. We see something a little bit similar, but it's, it's this. God fulfills his promise and he will remove all threats to it. In a number of ways, God has promised this child over and over again, this, this, uh, since Genesis 12, and now finally God fulfills this promise some 25 years after he first promised. In verses 1 and 2, we read a, a clear emphasis on the fulfillment of God's promise. It's clear that Isaac's birth was, was not just happenstance. It was, it was the miracle birth of, of um, God's action in Abraham and Sarah's Life. It was specifically the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. This is, a, this is a miracle birth. In verses 3 through 6, we read of the naming of Isaac. We read of the circumcision of Isaac, the age of Abraham, and the resulting laughter from Sarah and everyone who hears of what happened. It's not the first time laughter has taken place, right? Abraham's laughed before with some sort of like rejoicing. But Sarah, remember the last time she laughed? It was like, yeah, right. Right? She just kind of laughed in that way. Well, now... She's just given birth, and she's laughing with rejoicing. As a matter of fact, everybody who is going to hear her story is going to laugh from here on out. Not a laugh of a mocking laugh, but a laugh of rejoicing. Like, this is amazing. And that's the reality. It took 25 years. Lots of difficult experiences. But God was faithful to his promise. Now, stop and consider this for a moment. God's given us some pretty amazing promises in the Bible, and he will fulfill every single one of them. Promises of man can often be fickle, but God's promises are never so, as we talked about with the kids this morning. We can can have absolute certainty that God will keep every single promise he's ever made. It's unquestionably true. Some may take years to fulfill. Others are immediate. Others are present, like right now. But there's, there's some. Um, I think of how often we pray for healing. Sometimes God will heal on the spot. He's the only one that can. He's the only one that will. Other times, suffering languishes. But guess what he's going to do in the end? of the time, he will heal the person when he sees them face to face. That's not just a a nice, well, okay, well, whatever. This is our hope. That all the suffering that we experience now, not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed on that day. We continue to pray. We, we pray for healing. We pray for God to move in, in suffering. We pray for, for, uh, for things to cease in our culture. We pray for all these things, and we pray so with faith. We pray so with faith, not in the specificity necessarily of our request. We pray in the absolute faith that God will always do what's right, and we are asking him to move in specific ways. And ultimately, we rest under his sovereign hand. The God who is sovereign over all things and sometimes takes 25 years or more to answer his or to, to, to kind of fulfill his promises. He is the one who is with us and for us and not against us. He is, he is calling us to pray in dependent ways. He's calling us to pray for healing. He's calling us to pray for the gifts. He's calling us to pray for miracles. He's calling us to pray for this nation. He's calling us to pray for this world. He's calling us to pray for strength and all of those things. And we lay it all in his hands as the good, sovereign 
God, and we trust him completely. And, uh, and we hope for the immediate restoration at times. Because you know, think, think about this. Even if someone, if someone were to have a specific disease that was going to end in death, their only hope, medication's not, good, not working, um, we pray for healing. And uh, we would be significantly jazzed if God healed somebody like he's done in scripture and like we should expect. Is that person going to get sick again? The person's going to get sick again. The person's going to contract a different disease at some point or just simply end up dying. Ultimate healing, the ultimate healing that we long for is not, is not just the temporal healing, although that is gracious and we want to pursue that. It is the it is the lasting, infinite, eternal healing that will take place. And we can 100% pray that God would be glorified in that. And that God would be glorified in this length of time, whether it's immediate deliverance from a sickness or if it's a long-term deliverance from sickness. Consider the promise that God has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. I mean, think, think about that. God, our Father, will never leave us nor forsake us. We're looking for God all over the place. We're looking for God to promise God to do this or that or the other thing. God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you wherever you go, he says, even to the end of the age. Or consider the promise I alluded to earlier found in Romans 8 where we're promised that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of of God, which is found in Jesus Christ, or, or God works all things together for good for those who love him, as much as that verse has been misused in certain, at, at, at very poor times, the reality is still true. He does work all things for good to them that love him, or God will not let you be tempted above that which you're able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear that specific temptation. He's present. He's an ever-present help in trouble. Or that he will complete the work that he's began in you. Or that he will forgive you of your sins if you confess to him. Or he will keep you and present you blameless with great joy on that final day before the presence of the Lord. Or that he will comfort us all in our affliction. Or that he will give us rest when we come to him as those who are tired and weary. Or that he will give us peace that surpasses all understanding and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus when we come to him in prayer. Or if you've ever been the victim of a significant act of evil, then you know how helpful it is that God promises to not let the wicked go unpunished. Our justice will be served. Or, or, or that if you ask anything according to his will, he will give it to you. In each and every promise, we wait on the Lord. We rest in the Lord. We revel in the Lord. And we trust in the Lord because his word is the only one that's trustworthy. He calls us to pray. He calls us to depend on him. He calls us to ask of him, to seek, ask, seek, and knock. And so we do, and we entirely trust him. Among so many blessings, the eternal life that John 3.16 promises will involve an end to all of our suffering when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, and the former things have passed away. We, we want to see that uh, more and more in this time, in this, let's, we pray, we pray for healing, we pray for deliverance, we pray for all that, we pray primarily for people to come to faith in Christ, that they would be eternally healed, and not just temporally so. Now, these are all just the tip of the iceberg of the many wonderful promises we find in the Bible. Uh, would it not be a good idea to familiarize ourselves with those promises so that they can be a comfort to us uh, as the Spirit brings them back to our minds? We, we often lose hope because we don't know the promises of God nor the God of the promises. So homework for this week. Take a Take a, really whatever passage of scripture. Take, take, a, take for instance, a, um, a letter to the Philippians or to the Ephesians or Colossians or go back to Psalms or, or look in any, really any place in scripture. If you read long enough, you're going to find some promises. Take note of those promises. Write them down. 
be encouraged by them, memorize the promise. And over time, you will declare the promises and you will remind God of his promises in your prayer time, trusting him for them. As we consider God's faithfulness in fulfilling the promise of Isaac, we can see that God always speaks truthfully. The rational reality is that Isaac's birth is impossible. Sarah was well past the age of childbearing. There's no way it could have happened. And that's true, except that it was absolute, unequivocal miracle that took place. And specifically, when God said it would happen. Remember last week, he said, I'll be back about a year from now. That's exactly what happened. God's words are absolutely true and without any error or falsehood. This is God's word. It is true and without any error. Numbers 23, we're told, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? In Proverbs 30, we're told that every word of God proves true. true, true. And in Titus, we are told that God never lies. In Hebrew, we're told it's impossible for God to lie. He speaks truth. God is a God of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He, he speaks truth. He can be trusted entirely. It's all he speaks is truth. And it's because God always speaks truthfully without any falsehood that we can not only trust him entirely no matter what we think of the timing, but it's because of God being a truth-speaking God that those who follow him are also called to be truth-tellers, truth-speakers. This is why Paul would tell the Ephesians, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And in a culture that's inundated with lies, those who follow Christ serve a God of truth by the power of the Spirit. We are those who should also live and tell the truth. Now all that's related to the faithfulness that God demonstrates in keeping his promise to Abraham by miraculously bringing about Isaac's birth. God shows himself faithful. He shows himself true to his word. He fulfills his promise. And we see clearly that God is faithful to accomplish not just his promises, but he accomplishes everything he purposes. In verses 8 through 13, we're reminded of a situation that came about because Abraham and Sarah had previously tried to take things into their own hands. They, they were impatient Understandably so, from a human standpoint. God promised something to them, and they started to think, well, maybe we should do something about that. You might imagine after several years, they, they became tired of waiting for the child that God had promised them. And so they decided to have Abraham sleep with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, Tried to have a son that way, and sure enough, she got pregnant, and Ishmael was born. The Ishmael that's in our text. Now, this was more than just a bad decision. This was a purposeful, sinful departure from God's plan, what God had promised, unbelief. In these verses, we can begin to see what a big mess it made. The text, saw, the text uh, said that Sarah saw Hagar's son Ishmael laughing at or, or mocking her own son Isaac, the son of promise. The ultimate result of this incident, uh, which ends up being confirmed by God in verse 12, is that Hagar and Ishmael have to go. Sarah wants them to go for her own reasons, doesn't want any rivalry between them, wants her son to be uh, the promised one, and certainly he is. But God commands them to be sent away, not because of some sort of sibling rivalry, but because it's a direct threat to the purposes of God through the promised son Isaac. Ishmael is a specific threat. From the very beginning, God had chosen Isaac to be the one through whom God's covenant with Abraham would be fulfilled. And through whom blessing would one day flow to the entire world, even to Dayton, Ohio, this morning. And God wasn't going to let anything stand in the way of that purpose being accomplished. He was faithful to accomplish his purpose. His promises, yes, and faithful to accomplish his purpose. Through, though, though there, was, there was a personal pain for Abraham. Promises were made to Ishmael. Still, God's plan to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever is through the prophet's son, Isaac. He was the promised one. And sometimes we purpose to do something, but then lose interest or change our minds or don't follow through for whatever reason. But God is not like us. He's always faithful to follow through on his promises, to accomplish his purposes. 
just like he does in Genesis 21 with Isaac. Even though we might sometimes make some foolish decisions, like Abraham did, decisions that often bring a great amount of sorrow, we can never ultimately wreck God's plan for us. Regardless of, regardless of what we've done or what messes we've made, God can take the strength, the, 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 the mess of our life, he can take that and straighten it out and make something beautiful out of it. This is what God's done with many of us in this room. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ today, this is what he can do for you also. No matter how bad our culture may get, no matter the long-term effects of the unbelief of God and his word and many of the evil decisions that are being made by our society, God can still take all the messes people have made and work in merciful, beautiful ways. Just like we see with Abraham, just like we see with the Apostle Paul, just like we've experienced ourselves, many of us, if we've believed on Christ, can overcome all of it to accomplish his purposes and to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever. God is committed to it. He's going to see it done. And there may be consequences, just like there were with Abraham. We can't disrupt the purposes of God for us in and through the Lord Jesus, even though there are consequences for, you know, one, living in a society that's so sinful, but also just, like we said earlier, just the consequences for our own indiscretions and sins. God offers grace to us through Jesus that exceeds anything we may have done in the past, Grace greater than our sin. His mercy is more. And it's more through Jesus alone. And again, similar to the last chapter, while Isaac may be the immediate focus uh, of these chapters in Genesis, he's not the ultimate focus. We are meant to see that every little bit of grace, again, that we've ever received or will ever receive, flows out of God, flows out of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. In the last chapter, um, God was determined to use Abraham as the vehicle of healing for Abimelech and Abimelech's household. And in a similar manner, taken to the New Testament now, in a similar manner, it's through Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, and him alone that we've been redeemed from our sins. And we experience the many aspects of God's saving grace. In Galatians 3.16, we're reminded that the true and ultimate offspring of Abraham wasn't Isaac, but Jesus. And Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And Jesus is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. He is the son of the promise. Like Abraham and Sarah with Isaac, God's people had to wait a long time for Jesus to be born. I mean, centuries. But God fulfilled his promise just as he always does when he miraculously enabled Mary. We know the story well. We're coming upon it. He enabled Mary to conceive as a virgin to give birth to the one who would become the savior of the world, Jesus himself. God had promised Abraham way back in Genesis 12, 3 that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that blessing came ultimately through Abraham's offspring centuries later. In Jesus. And the way Jesus accomplished that was by living a perfect life in our place and by dying in our place. Even though our sins deserve his judgment, Jesus endured that judgment in our place on the cross. His, his death atoned for our sins so that instead of facing the justice that we deserve, we can receive the grace we don't deserve. And Jesus rose from the dead and now stands ready to receive anyone and rescue anyone who will put their trust in him. Now, Jesus removes the, the threat against us and against his covenant. He re, he's removed it. The threat of spiritual death. And he can rescue you from whatever sins you've committed, or whatever messes you've made of your life. If you'll just trust in his promises that are all found in Jesus. He is the one, Psalm 103, verse 3, he's the one who forgives all your iniquity. He's the one who heals all your diseases. He's the one who redeems your life from the pit. He will do that for you if you will cease trusting in yourself and your own efforts to get uh, right with God by following the law. Just trying to do right, trying to be better, trying to be good. Paul gets at this in Galatians by utilizing Sarah and Hagar. Sarah being the free woman and Hagar being the slave woman. He says, there's a threat and danger 
against my covenant for following Hagar, for following the son, or following the, the slave woman rather than the free woman in whom there is the promise of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in him is where all the promises of God are found. At the end of chapter 21, after Abraham makes a covenant with Abimelech at Beersheba, it says this in verse 33. It was there that he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And he did so because he had personally experienced the grace and favor of God and his faithfulness to his promises, even amid Abraham's failures and lack of faith. He knew afresh that with God all things are possible, that true life is found and hope is alive for the present and for the future. And because of all that, he called on the name of the Lord. He trusted him and he worshiped him and believed on him and he followed him. And not only is the God of miracles, but the God who is everlasting and always good and always does what is right, no matter how we might perceive it in any slice of time. His word is true. He believes that. His word is true. And he is absolutely trustworthy. And in him, there is victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. May we be a people, you and I, be a people today who are eager to trust him who are eager to follow him and to live for him in the safe confines of his love and forgiveness. Amid a culture that is very unsafe, we stand in union and in fellowship with God himself, with Christ, safe and secure, kept forever. May we walk in the spirit, not giving into the flesh, not simply looking for an experience that will seem to confirm to us that God is still on the throne, but submitting ourselves to the word and to the spirit in every single moment of our days, in every normal experience, everyday life, that we would be filled, that this is the promise, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. What, what else do we want? We experience the joy that there is in being known by God. Being loved by God, experiencing all that satisfaction meant for us and all the promises that have been fulfilled and that are yet to be fulfilled in the days to come. We, he, is, he is absolutely trustworthy and we can rejoice in the faithfulness of the king today being assured that he will surely present all who trust in him as blameless on that final day. That's what we rejoice in. We rejoice that today he is faithful and we are assured that he will present us blameless on that final day. That's, that's what this text ultimately points to. And this is our great hope and why we sing, why we rejoice, why we encourage one another. May it be all the more so as we continue on together.